Hi, this is Cam from the Nerdbook Review, where we strive to broaden your fantasy horizons. Today, we're going to be bringing you an author interview. We'll have Mike Schell on the program today. He is the author of Aching God, as well as quite a bit of stuff for the Pathfinder board game. He has entered Aching God into this year's Spiffbo competition. We'll get right to the episode here in just a moment, as soon as we do our usual housekeeping. You can reach us via email at nerdbookreview at gmail.com. You can reach us at Facebook through Nerdbook Review or on Twitter at Nerdbook Review. Once again, if you could leave us a rating or review on the platform that you listen to us, that would be wonderful. With that out of the way, let's get right to the interview. The Nerdbook Review is happy to welcome Mike Shell author of The Aching God, among his many exploits. How are you doing today? Doing well. Good. Um, thank you so much for, uh, first off, your patience. Uh, our move uh, really threw things off. I went actually three weeks without having internet, which was a little rough, but uh, I did make it through. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Uh, I'm originally from the Detroit area. I grew up in Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, my, my father was a firefighter. My mother was a, was a homemaker. Uh, I went to, uh, to undergrad and a tidy and liberal arts college in Southern Illinois and got my useless bachelor's degree in psychology. <laughs> uh, worked uh, uh, in inpatient psychiatry and a little bit of uh, student development and all, at my alma mater and uh, then ended up... Uh, uh, five years after got my undergrad, I went back to graduate school in uh, clinical psychology. Um, I've uh, practiced as a uh, psychotherapist for the past 20 plus years um, with my specific area of expertise in anxiety and panic, although uh, I, I've worked in community mental health all those years. So when you work in community mental health, you tend to, to be a generalist and work with uh, people uh, presenting with all sorts of uh, issues, uh, mood disorders and personality disorders, uh, psychotic disorders, addiction, um, uh, grief and loss, trauma, that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, I live now in Indianapolis, Indiana with my uh, wife, uh, Tracy, and uh, my uh, three-year-old son, Leo, and I have uh, uh, two beautiful uh Stepdaughters, eighteen and twenty-three, uh, Trinity and Haley. Oh man, quite the uh, the age difference there. So you, uh, how's the going back to having a, a toddler then? It was not a well thought out plan. <laughs> um, uh, it, it's uh, it was a, a big surprise for both of us, um, and uh, uh, he's he's fantastic. I mean, just it's been amazing having having this little guy. I, I didn't think that was something that was going to happen to me. You know, I was okay being a stepdad and and uh, 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 and helping to raise helping to raise the girls, and then then Leo just kind of decided to show up on our doorstep <laughs> uh, without us really uh, uh, planning on it. So. It's it's been a challenge, but it, it's been an it's been an amazing it's been an amazing experience. Yeah, well, I do have to ask you, what's the worst uh, of the cartoon shows that uh, your son likes to watch? You know what? He he's not too bad about that. He's recently in the last few months, he's really gotten into Sesame Street, and that actually warms my heart. Uh, he you know 
these days, of course, we don't have to wait for it to come on. We've got, you know, Netflix and, and Amazon and other streaming services. So, uh, you know, we just fire up the, uh, uh, the uh, Sesame Street and I get a kick out of having that on in the background while he's watching and uh, knowing that he's learning and and a lot of the uh, the animated uh, films that he enjoys are are, are, are uh, you know they're geared so that they, they are entertaining to adults too things mm-hmm. like uh, Sing, Secret Life of Pets uh, Trolls uh, the Penguins movie he loves <laughs> so yeah, and I haven't, uh, other than Paw Patrol and uh, Thomas the Tank Engine, I haven't been too traumatized by uh, by children's uh, children's television programs. That is nice. Uh, we've got Paw Patrol and then the Rescue Bots, which are both awful, but just this week he decided, Bran is my three-year-old, he decided that he wanted to watch some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and uh, apparently in 1997 they made a TV sh- series... Uh, live action, just one season, and it might be the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. It is something else. Yes. <laughs> but so big parent. Yeah, yeah. And then we have actually, uh, my wife is five months along with a daughter now, so we're super excited oh, wow. that we're going to have uh, the boy and the girl, and then we'll call her good. Cool. Congratulations. Thank you. So, how did you get into writing, and how would you describe your writing style? Uh, I've I've always, uh, as long as I can remember, wanted to wanted to write. Um, it was uh, er, early adolescence because uh, I've I've loved reading, and uh, uh, had my go at uh, writing uh, short stories back in the fifth and sixth grade, and uh, uh, ended up uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons uh, in uh, late junior high, uh, early high school. And loving the storytelling elements of that. And uh, right before grad school, I ended up uh, writing a couple of adventures for Dungeon Magazine, which was kind of the, the showcase for uh, uh, lay people uh, writing uh, adventures using, uh, using the Dungeons & Dragons system. So this was the early 90s. I got two published in the magazine, that, uh, and uh, then I started grad school, and uh, that you know absorbed 70 hours of, a week <laughs> for, for four years uh, uh, without ceasing, and then was, there was my career after that. So really, after getting those two things published, I, you know, I kind of embarked on this career as a, as a therapist and, and didn't look back until uh, around 2010. I originally wrote those two uh, modules. Uh, there was no such thing really as the internet. Uh, and one day I got a wild hair in 2010 said, I wonder if there's anything on the internet about that stuff that I wrote all those years ago. And uh, it turned out that one of those adventures had been uh, really popular. Uh, yeah, yeah and oh, wasn't it uh, voted as like the, the best of those modules ever written? At one point... Uh, the, uh, a bunch of industry professionals rated the uh, picked their top ten uh, modules written for the magazine, and uh, the Mud Sorcerer's Tomb was the name of the adventure, uh, and it was rated number one by these ind- industry insiders. So, yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty. Uh, I was blown away by that. <laughs> yeah, I think I would be super excited. I, I, that's the kind of thing I'd be like, see, wife. Look at this. Look, yeah. see, I can write. <laughs> yeah, and so, so I uh, at that point I contacted uh, 
James Jacobs at Paizo Publishing. He's the cre- he's the creative director there, uh, and was responsible that the what I what had happened in two thousand and seven with a new iteration of uh, of Dungeons and Dragons. I think it was three They did a revision of that particular adventure. Uh, and uh, James Jacobs had tried to get hold of me uh, to see if I wanted to be involved in the revision. Uh, but, of course, Mike Shell was a pen name, and so he had no way of getting hold of me. And then three years later in 2010, when I found out about this, that's when I contacted him and said, hey, um, I'd really like to get uh, into writing again. And uh, asked him if, uh, if it would be possible for me to write for uh, the Pathfinder role-playing game, which is was being produced by Paizo at that point in time. And he invited me in and, and, uh, uh, over the last seven or eight years, I've, I've written, uh, lots of stuff for, uh, for the Pathfinder role-playing game. Well, that's super cool. And, and that's, so that's like the, the Dungeons and Dragons 3.0 then basically is, is how you would define Pathfinder? Uh, actually the 3.5. Oh, all right. <laughs> what they call it. Uh, because, uh, without getting into all the gory details about the uh, addition wars and and uh, that have gone on, and uh, anyone who doesn't isn't involved in role playing games would be bored to death uh, about it. <laughs> um, when uh, when Wizards of the Coast, which uh, produces Dungeons and Dragons, owns the intellectual property, including Mount Sorcerer's Tomb, uh, decided that they were going to do uh, the fourth edition of Dungeons and Dragons. Lots of people were not happy with them because they had invested a great deal of money uh, in 3.0 and uh, and all of their stuff was going to be obsolete. So what happened is, is that Paizo was producing Dungeon Magazine for Wizards of the Coast, Paizo Publishing. And uh, they were suddenly, had suddenly were having their contract pulled from them. And so Paizo decided, hey, why don't we come up with our own role-playing game that preserves uh, the elements of uh, D&D 3.0 with some, some improvements and tweaks uh, and, uh, and see if that doesn't uh, draw, a, you know, draw an audience and keep us in business. And it's, you know, it's done more than that. Pathfinder at one point was uh, the most popular role-playing game in the world. Yeah, so then quick question then. Uh, relating to your books, is the map that is in the Aching God tied into um, anything with specifically with the Pathfinder, or is that something that's just uh, separate and unique on your own? Uh, actually, uh, the uh, the the story behind Aching God uh, uh, was originally an idea I had for a standalone module for Pathfinder, and. Uh, Probably about five years ago, I pitched it to James Jacobs at Gen Con. We we had we were having lunch at Gen Con and said, "Hey, I got this an idea for a module," and uh, he passed on it. And the next year, I, I you know this uh, this story idea kept was just sticking with me, and I pushed it at him again uh, a year later, and uh, he uh, he passed on it again. He said, "Why? That sounds like something that you need to write, you know, for yourself." So, uh, one of the the bits of feedback that I had gotten from James over the years of him developing stuff that I had written for Pathfinder is, uh, remember you're not writing a novel. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, my wife had been on me for years too saying, why, why don't you write a novel? You know, why don't you, why don't you do that? You've always wanted to do it. And, uh, uh, I ended up adapting, 
uh, this story for this module into the novel. Uh, what had to change, though, is that, and what makes writing uh, material for RPG versus a novel is that uh, when you're writing RPG material, you're not writing the for the heroes. Uh, you're just you're setting up a framework for the players to be the heroes and to decide what direction the game goes. Uh, so. Uh, uh, developing a whole story behind it, I thought this would make this would work for Pathfinder Tales, which was uh, pa- was Paizo's uh, fiction line. And I, I spoke with uh, James Sutter, who was uh, uh, the head of their fiction line at that point, and 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 uh, proposed it to him as as a novel. Uh, and he basically said at that point they were only doing Pathfinder Tales from established writers and uh, as in novelists. And uh, so, you know, if I get a novel published, come back to them and I could talk with them about it then. <laughs> That's when I decided, okay, I, I should go the self-publishing route with this. And uh, so that meant creating my own world. And Galarian is the world for Pathfinder, the world that Paizo has created for their game. And so uh, I filed off some of the serial numbers. People who are familiar with Pathfinder will see uh, some of the pl- things that, that are derivative of, of Pathfinder. But I really made a lot of changes to, to the nature of the world and created uh, you know, this, uh, the world of the novel and it's in it's very different in many ways from from the Pathfinder world of Galarian. I do want to just say that the map is so easy to follow. I looked at it once. Uh, it's very it's, you do have a, a pretty color uh, map with the uh, the Kindle version, but uh, that I looked at it once and then I pretty much knew exactly you know how to to follow where they were going. The uh, the tail is very clear and you know in mm-hmm. telling you you can tell they're going from basically the island of the south and this continuing on north. Um, I do have a quick question for you before we get into the book itself, though. Who uh, would you consider uh, like influences on you author-wise, and what were some of the books that uh, that that you liked growing up? Um, probably my 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 introduction to fantasy was Lord of the Rings. Uh, uh, as uh, as I don't know, thirteen year old, twelve, thirteen year old, uh, reading The Hobbit and uh, and then the Lord of the Rings. Uh, from there, I uh, I don't know how it happened. I, a friend might have introduced me to it. Uh, I'm not sure, but Michael Moorcock's um, uh, Elric series was next, and I ended up devouring everything that I could get my hands on uh, for of Elric and Hawkmoon and Corum and uh, all of uh, Michael Moorcock's stuff. Then uh, Fritz Lieber. Liber, I've never been gotten straight, which uh, <laughs> how to pronounce that. Uh, uh, Robert Howard's Conan. I uh, probably later, uh, later adolescence into into college, I started reading a lot of Gene Wolfe in the uh, Earth of the New Sun or the Book of the New Sun. Uh, I just think is is a masterpiece. Um, just amazing, amazing uh, uh, world building and and storytelling. These days, I love China Mievel. Um, I think N.K. Jemisin is is a, a wonderful, wonderful writer. Um, Ken Liu. Uh, well, yeah. you know what's funny? A, a name that you didn't include that I actually um, 
that you kind of reminded me of in some aspects, especially once they get to the Barrowlands, is Glenn Cook in the um, the Black Company series. It was a kind of a feel I got once they made it to the Barrowlands. Yeah, that actually. Yes, I've read. I've read Glenn Cook. He's another. He's another favorite. Um, I I love. I love the Black Company. Uh, and yeah, I can see where you where uh, where you can where you see that parallel. Yeah. Alrighty then. Well, since we're uh, <laughs> getting into the Aiken God, uh, since we're just inching our way there, so you've mentioned already how the book came about and and uh, a little bit of uh, you know how you got from the Pathfinder to this. Could you give us a, a quick synopsis of the book itself? Uh, the main character, uh, Oric Manteo, is a retired adventurer. A uh, member of the Seraic League, or once was a member of the Seraic League, which is kind of a quasi-governmental agency uh, that is answerable to the crown uh, for exploring uh, old tombs and ruins where treasure and uh, and uh, magical magical uh, items might be discovered. Um, it's one of the things that always uh, kind of got me about a lot of fantasy worlds is is if there's if the government it knows of a place where there's lots of money, uh, lots of cash, and uh, things of great power, they're going to have their hands in that, and they're not going to want you know just some average Joe to be uh, walking in there and and uh, <laughs> walking away with the items of great power and and value. So the idea is that this is this is uh, sanctioned by the government, and. Uh, and Oric was a member of this uh, this uh, uh, organization, uh, swordsman, and uh, was w- part of it for many years. Uh, ended up uh, uh, his his both of his children followed him into the uh, organization, and uh, very soon after his son joined, his son was killed on his on his first venture, and this led to uh, his wife suiciding and him kind of losing it and kind of pushing his team harder than he should have. And ultimately, uh, his his entire team was killed in a, in a tomb in the Barrowlands that you mentioned. And uh, he barely survived and came out half mad and, and thoroughly traumatized by what had happened to him. He ends up retiring to the countryside. And... Uh, this is all, you know. This all happens before the novel takes place. He, I've I've often said that uh, I could do an elevator pitch only if the elevator became trapped between floors for a couple <laughs> of hours. Um, to to really just kind of cut to the chase, uh, Oric is called out of retirement because of uh, a magical plague, and uh, tasked with uh, with returning uh, uh, some cursed object. To a tomb from uh, from which it was it was uh, taken, and uh, he does this in part out of obligation to the Seraic League, but also because uh, his only surviving uh, daughter is uh, is implicated in in what's going on. Yeah, and and all of this stuff happens pretty early, and uh, it sounds like you're describing an awful lot of like the plot itself. But really, this is the beginning of the book, and and things that are spelled out for us pretty uh, immediately. The real like meat of the story that is is what happens, you know, with that group, and as they go through, actually go up to the Barrowlands, and mm-hmm. um, so, you know, I think the thing 
for me that really made this book, um, and uh, you know, I did rate this a five out of five on uh, Goodreads at Amazon. And Thank you. Um, <laughs> you bet. And I think that the reason that for me what what really stuck out was that you had that. Uh, I mean, basically, he's washed up. I mean, he's got PTSD clearly. Um, he is, uh, he's an older character. Uh, he's not your typical farm boy chosen one. And right. uh, what made you decide to go that route with, uh, with your main character? Part of it was the, the old chestnut about write what you know. Uh, you know, my, again, my, my area of expertise as a, as a therapist is anxiety and panic. And I've done a good deal of work with survivors of trauma. And one of the things that's always kind of uh, gotten me about a lot of adventure fantasy is the way these really kind of terrifying uh, traumatic experiences just seem to roll off the backs of of those characters. Uh, You don't really see the kind of emotional, psychological impact those those, uh, experiences have on, on the people who survive them. And and so I thought it would be uh, interesting to dramatize that, to really show uh, the impact of trauma uh, in a fantasy setting. Um, and and trauma on someone who just doesn't have a wise ass quip for, you know, horrifying things that <laughs> just happened. Yeah. Well. Uh, you know, like it's funny because it's. I think it's something that some people think is is new to like modern the modern world. But I mean, if you go back and look, you know, throughout history, like the Civil War, you know, that was the the beginning. You, you had so many people going west who were basically outlaws that uh, that couldn't deal with it. The, the just the massive amount of uh, spousal abuse that happened that was a, mm. a you know result of PTSD. And you can just go it's throughout history and. And yeah, and substance abuse. You can see the motorcycle gangs after World War II, you know, and things like that that really started up. And I think I do think that people just forget that uh, that you know people were traumatized throughout history, and it's not like suddenly we're soft and and you know we're feeling these pains that, uh, that our forebears didn't. Right. It's it was actually called shell shock in the uh, the first for, first uh, World War. Uh, they they called the phenomenon shell shock, and we understand a lot more about about trauma now and and how to treat trauma um but yes it certainly isn't a modern uh, a modern phenomenon it's just we have we have a better understanding and a and a more precise way of talking about the experience and we've we've at least have tried to take a lot of the uh uh the negative connotation and what's the word i'm looking for um i mean I get the negative the connotation stigma. yep no yeah, stigma Taking the stigma out of out of people who uh, who are survivors of trauma and the impact that can have on them. Yeah. So um, now that we we've talked about how you have your your older character who's brought back, you know, be, and the only reason he's back is because of his daughter. And, you know, yeah. she's the, that last living uh, family member. Uh, right. How did you decide on the the rest of the group composition? It is a, a fairly uh, like standard kind of like uh, almost formulaic. That's the, I feel like that has a negative connotation, but it's but it, I'm not saying it negatively. Um, but with uh, you know like you have your thieves and you have your uh, like the magicians and and th- mages right. and things like that. Is that a result of Pathfinder the way the the group structure was? Let me uh, let me go back to 
the, your first question this because there's one other piece I want to talk oh, about before yep. I get to that question. Um, the the idea of, of the older protagonist. Um, I I chose to make him uh, an an older uh, person, uh, someone who is much closer to my age, uh, because I'm a lot more interested now in how people deal in later life with their their failures, their mistakes, uh, things not turning out the way that they wanted them to turn out, life not going the way they expected it to go. I, I think I find that a whole lot more engaging and and interesting uh, now than than I might have when I was a younger man. Uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not ancient. I mean, I'm I'm 54, <laughs> but uh, uh, I I just uh, I thought that. So much of, as you noted, you know, so much of fantasy is about the farm boy who discovers his his great destiny and how he's actually a was prophesied as the you know as the the coming of of whatever. And um, I just thought that this was a this was a, a different kind of an angle and one that would be a little more personally interesting to me. Yeah, I can totally understand that. Yeah, uh, the uh, composition of the party. Um, this is, I think, this is obvious. Uh, it's obvious how much RPG uh, uh, influence, you know, who's going to be a, a part of a group. Um, the way I chose the composition, I wanted the majority of those uh, that that Oric would be leading to be a lot younger, a lot more green than him, uh, and uh, but also to be people who are very good at what they did very competent uh your party you want your 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 party to be balanced so that you've got you know you got firepower you've got healing you've got you know those all those angles covered but in a lot of ways i i chose the members of the party based on world building i wanted to be able to to do to show the world through these different perspectives of sira the priest and how much that brings the religion piece into uh, into the novel, uh, the uh, uh, Lumari, the alchemist, to show the, the you know the Im- the influence of of, uh, of kind of quasi science uh, in in the world, you know, to bring in the old soldier Belloc uh, as a way to say a little bit about the the, uh, the way the uh, the empire is organized and the fact that. Uh, you know, there's there's a there are some unstable borders that have to be dealt with with barbarians in the north. Uh, so a lot of what what in, what drove the composition of the party was how could they contribute to the world building? How could they? How could their stories flesh out this this uh, the the world of the novel? Yeah, well, and I can absolutely see that. Uh, you know, as you say that and. I think that, uh, you know, it's important that you, you didn't have any throwaway characters because, you know, that were just there to, to further, uh, like, Auric or anything like that. And I think that, uh, well, I mean, in this case, Auric, he was my favorite uh, character. But um, Belloc, he I really liked him, too, because I felt like he was a good way to, to kind of relate between the young, the youth and the, and the old, you know. In, mm-hmm. in this one, and uh, I just felt like he was—he was just a fun character to be the uh, to be kind of the sidekick, I guess, if you will. But you know, not really. Right. And right. 
I ha- and as I mentioned earlier, and, and you were talking about with the world building, I felt like you did um, just a really solid job on really fleshing out this world. And Thank I you. know that you said that you had a little bit of that Pathfinder to start off with, but that you really changed it and made it your own. Um, do you have um, plans going forward to, to write more of these books? Are you writing one right now, or what is your plan uh- with this? I am. Aching God is the first in a planned trilogy. I'm about 57,000 words into the second book, which is called uh, Sin Eater. Uh, And I'm hoping that I'm going to have that uh, available before the the year is out. Um, The third book uh, is called Idols Fall. And... uh, that is an outline form, and I, I haven't a clue, you know, when that's going to be ready. But uh, I've got that trilogy in mind. I have a second trilogy set two to three hundred years in the future uh, in mind. I've got ideas for uh, a prequel uh, novel or at least a novella, and I also have uh, an idea for a novella set in uh, as Ashkea. Uh, uh, which is the kind of mysterious eastern uh, enemy of of Hanifax that is uh, is mentioned on, in the novel on, on several occasions. Mm-hmm. So I, I really I'm really uh, invested in this world, and uh, for the foreseeable future, I can I I I, I think I'm going to be writing writing in it. That's cool. And your your prequel is that going to have anything to do with the queen or? It would have to do with Korathangana, who uh, was the founder of the Empire of Hanifax. He's the one who brought the pantheon of gods from the Barrel Lands to, uh, to Hanifax uh, back in the day. Okay. So it's actually telling his story. Okay, and that is uh, uh, discussed just a little bit in, in this novel. Right. Um. So I think that uh, that pretty well gets you know your uh, creative plans. Are you going to do any more of the modules for the Pathfinder game? Uh, I don't have. Uh, I've got one uh, chapter of an adventure path, which is uh, it's a uh, a product that Paizo came up with, where they're telling uh, uh, a big overarching story that brings characters from first level up to 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th level. And uh, they do two of these a year in six separate chapters with six separate uh, writers. And uh, I have uh, the second chapter in uh, one that is going to be starting this August, uh, The Return of the Rune Lords uh, is the name of the the adventure path. My adventure is called It Came from Hollow Mountain. But I, at this point, don't have any assignments and uh, don't know of anything else that's been lined up. So... uh, I wouldn't be uh, opposed to writing more, but uh, to be really honest, I'm, I, again, I'm really invested in in the world that I've created in Aching God and wanting to uh, to flesh that out further. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think I can hear your son. son you hear my fear, calling the dog, who, one of our dogs who is up here with me right now. <laughs> um. So yes, I, I I will. It will amuse me very very much that uh, when we hear a kid on this recording, it will finally not be my son, the one that's uh, always running in, and uh, yeah. he has a he loves to uh, just to be naked in general, and uh-huh. he, his favorite thing to do is 
just to, to to randomly get naked and then wander on in and watch us do our podcast. And uh, yes, <laughs> yes, Leo's not opposed to nudity. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I can see that uh, that being uh, a distracting thing for for a pad- podcaster. <laughs> That's all right, though. Um, so you you've already mentioned that uh, that you tried to pitch this uh, to like the Pathfinder uh, people, but have you done any? Did you ever try to send it out to um, throughout any of the other query system, or is it something that once you decided to go that route that you just went self published? Uh, actually. Um I had the privilege of uh, an editor from one of the big five taking a look at it. Um, it was one of the editors who who was working with with Paizo on their Pathfinder Tales line. He had he had read my uh, my my RPG stuff for Pathfinder and enjoyed it. And I approached him at uh, Gen Con uh, a few years back um, to let him know that I wanted to write a novel. And he said, well, when you finish it, send me a copy and I'll take a look at it. And he did that the following gen- I, I wrote it uh, after that Gen Con. The following Gen Con, we sat down for lunch and he gave me some feedback. And uh, while he had some really good things to say about it, he said he did not think that a New York publisher would be interested in the novel. And the reason he gave for that is he said that my protagonist was too nice um, <laughs> I, I think what he was getting at was, uh, you know, I think the, the big five are still really hooked into the whole grimdark, uh, genre or subgenre, I should say. Uh, and I was really kind of committed to creating a protagonist who was an unmitigated good guy. And, uh, you know, I, I think that. Uh, when I, you know, getting that word that, you know, you're not going to be able to sell this to a New York, New York publisher, uh, despite the fact that he said that, you know, it was, it was well-written and, and, and engaging and that good world building, uh, that just told me that I needed to, I needed to go the self-publishing route, you know, coupling that feedback with the fact that I'm not someone who is terribly patient and, uh, you know, being told no repeatedly, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm someone who, if I'm digging a hole and I hit a rock, uh, I go find another place to dig the hole <laughs> rather than soldier through uh, through that rock and in the hole that I'm digging. So I think that I just don't have. I, I feel like as an older, uh, you know, older person, I'm not some guy in his, his late twenties trying to get a book published. Uh, you know, I don't have time to uh, to try to find a publisher. I need to do this myself. So that's the route that I ended up taking. Yeah, and. I think that, uh, you know, and I've, I discuss this all the time when I'm talking with authors, especially self-published authors, uh, that, you know, we're in a, a little bit different era anyways, as far as that, uh, unless you're one of the, like, top-end um, novelists, that you can probably, uh, you know, sell just as many books and make uh, just as much, if not more money, going the self-published route if you can, you know, find that, uh, catch that lightning in a bottle. Do you enjoy doing the the social media and self promotion aspects? No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't. Um, it's something that I know I have to do, and uh, 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 I tend to be an introvert. And 
you know, my it's funny because my my day job is one where I have to be the one who engages people in conversation. I'm, I'm much better one on one, but the the social media thing to me just feels like asking someone to dance with you over and over again. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I was never uh, you know I've always just you know found that to be really nerve wracking, and so. I'm not thrilled with the marketing aspect and the and the social media thing, but I I'm doing it and doing my best at at trying to do that and connect just because I know it's it's really essential if you want to have any success. Uh, not just as self-published authors, uh, traditionally published authors now are really needing to engage on social media as well if they want if they want to succeed. Yeah, I know. I think uh, like R.J. Barker is a really good example of someone that I feel like he does far more of his own. Um, you know, promotion than I've ever seen, like from Orbit or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I know that you, uh, you did put your book in for the, uh, Spiffbo competition this year. Uh, who has your book? Uh, the Quillery has my book. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to finding out what their criteria is, how they're going to be doing their judging. I know some of the other, blogs have already kind of said this is how we're this is how we're going to pick out our our favorite and uh, i'm looking forward to hearing what the what the quillery uh what their criteria is um but uh yeah i'm i'm, I'm real jazzed about about this competition it really feels like it's uh it's a long shot i mean 300 books um <laughs> And uh, to get even to get narrowed down to that to that to those semifinalists of ten, you know, is uh, you know one in I've got a one in thirty chance if we discount <laughs> you know uh, other factors, and I'm I'm excited about that because I know it really creates a lot of exposure for people, but it's also a great kind of networking tool for people too. I've already you know ended up. Uh, following and being followed by a number of other authors who are in, in the competition and uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. I think that uh, like, especially if you can make it to, to semi-finalist with the, the Quillery, then uh, I, th- I feel like, you know, even starting there that it's a, that it really starts helping with that exposure before, you know, um, but yeah, it really does right. seem like it's funny. It's, it's just a matter of the the taste of the the judge that you have. You know, I think that would be Absolutely. something. I don't have anything to do with the competition, so it doesn't help you one bit. But uh, you would have my vote. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> to make Thank it on you. through to the semifinalists, at the very least. Yeah, so. yeah. It really is a matter of it's of uh, you know. I think sometimes you've got you know you're comparing apples and or- and oranges and and. Uh, uh, there are a lot of books that I know of that have been in Spiffbo's uh, years past that, you know, were excellent books but didn't make it into the semifinals. So, uh, you know, you can't you can't get discouraged if you if you aren't one of the lucky ones getting selected because yeah. uh, a lot some of it is just a matter of taste. Yeah, I've been trying my best to follow the advice of of a couple other self published uh, authors I've talked with about this. To basically uh, stop ref- pay- refreshing the page and write the <laughs> next book. That's always a good. Uh, that is a good uh, good idea. <laughs> but yeah, uh, uh, that's that's where one thing as a uh, um, podcaster that's fun on my end is is the anxiety of whether you're going to be a semifinalist or not. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, do we have anything else that you wanted to talk about before we get all of your? Uh, you know, places you can be reached 
uh, social media in one place? The week, the first week that the book was out, I was approached by Podium uh, Publishing. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, asked if I would be interested in having them produce an audiobook version of Aching God. Uh, and I ended up signing a contract with them. Uh, and it is being produced as we speak. Uh, Simon Vance is the narrator. Uh, Simon Vance, uh, I think, pretty uh, pretty well known uh, narrator, actually in the in the Audible uh, Narrator Hall of Fame. Really gifted uh, gifted uh, actor and uh, and voice actor, and uh, just thrilled about that. And uh, it looks like it's going to be released sometime in late August. I think is what they're shooting for. I don't have the exact date yet. Um, and uh, they're at the same time producing uh, the uh, a short story that I wrote set in the world of the novel called Barrowlands. Uh, Simon Vance is also going to be doing a version of that short story, and that short story is going to be made available, I think, a few days before that uh, for free. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, as kind of a teaser, hopefully, to get people uh, into the novel. Yeah. So I'm... I'm, I'm I can't tell you how excited I am about having, you know, a first-class narrator uh, doing an audio book uh, of of the novel. Yeah, well, congratulations. That's awesome. That Thank is something you. that uh, that uh, certainly will be helpful um, to have the the different formats too. I know that the sometimes you know, it, um, especially if I'm like getting a little behind, I'll I'll throw on an audio book and um, mm -hmm. and and enjoy uh, you know the the difference. Yeah, that was one of the, uh, the the coolest experiences I've had so far. I had to uh, create an uh, uh, a pronunciation guide for uh, for the narrator. Uh, so I ended up having to record uh, uh, how to pronounce all the different words and names <laughs> peculiar to it. And uh, at one point, I got uh, an email from Emily at at Podium with uh, a, an audio file attached getting a clarification on some pronunciations that, you know, she was uh, saying these words in a, 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 a Toronto Starbucks, um, you know, making sure that the, the pronunciations were correct. And I thought, this is a really cool thing. <laughs> you know, someone cares how to pronounce these things uh, uh, and, uh, you know, got these pros who are working on this. And, uh, you know, just a year ago, I was wondering if I could even manage to get this thing out and if anyone would read it. So it, it's just been... I'm just really excited about it, and and it's been a really cool experience. Awesome, yeah, and and I guess I better throw out a shout out um, to Dirk Ashton, who is the uh, the reason I read your book. He um, is someone that I've you know first got in touch with because of Spiffbo, and then have really enjoyed his his novels. And uh, um, he posted um, on on his Facebook page about your book, and I looked into it, and I was like, man, this has some good early reviews from uh some bloggers that i that i do follow and, and listen to and so um that was the reason why i actually uh asked you to um to get a copy of the book to read yeah dirk uh dirk's a really uh a great guy and uh a really gifted uh gifted writer as well uh, he's uh, he's an he's uh one of uh of several self-publishing authors who i'm i've gotten connected with who were incredibly helpful in kind of showing me the ropes of how to go about this process. I, I, I don't think I, I would have had 
nearly as successful at launch if it weren't for uh, Dirk and and a few other uh, writers um, who were so helpful in in uh, help kind of holding my hand along the along the way. Yeah, I know. I really do feel like he he just genuinely likes to help people out and and mm-hmm. doesn't feel like he's just giving shout outs as a uh, you know because he needs to type of thing. I just feel like yeah. he enjoys himself. Yeah, word of mouth is just so important with uh, with self published uh, fantasy. Uh, you know, it, it that kind of thing's invaluable. And you know, hats off to Dirk and and uh, other folks who just kind of help uh, help feed the ecosystem so that the word gets out. Yeah. Well, um, as we wrap things up, where are some places that you can be reached on uh, social media? Uh, I, my Twitter handle is Mike Shell author. Uh, my website is just Mike Shell.com. My email is Mike Shell at Mike Shell.com. <laughs> so I have, a, I have this sad kind of anemic, uh, author Facebook page, uh, that I rarely update. And I really stopped putting much energy into it as soon as, um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, decided that I he, I needed to give him money uh, for the people who subscribed to it to actually get notification that I had posted something, and so I thought I you know I I stopped putting the energy into that. So uh, really, my website and and Twitter are the places to go to get hold of me. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so very much for the patience to uh, <laughs> make it through my move and to uh, to still come on to the podcast. And I really had a great time. Uh, the talking about the Pathfinder stuff was just fascinating to me. And mm. uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. I really uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to read the novel and, and uh, was a blast talking to you. Yeah, and uh, to everyone out there, I absolutely recommend reading the book. I really enjoyed it, and I really like the the both the world building and having that uh, non typical uh, protagonist. It was definitely a breath of fresh air to uh, it's even you know to have an old guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, and you have a great day. You too.